The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. Today, after the news, I'm bringing you two very special interviews. Uh, First, I had the honor and privilege to interview Congressman Adam Schiff at his Los Angeles office. And next, I chat with Pete Hardin, who is running to be Orange County's next uh, district attorney. Let's cover some uh, news headlines. President Joe Biden is facing multiple August crises with Afghanistan on the verge of collapse. COVID-19 patients overwhelming hospitals in some states, persistent inflation concerns, an uncertain path forward for his sweeping infrastructure agenda, and surging attempted border crossings. The security situation in Afghanistan has quickly deteriorated in recent days as the Taliban made major gains with administration officials taken back by the pace of the offensive. Overnight Thursday, the Taliban took control of the city of Kandahar, the second largest city in Afghanistan. The Taliban has taken control of 17 provincial capitals in the last week. The U.S. began sending 3,000 troops to Afghanistan Friday to help draw down personnel from the American embassy in Kabul, a plan formed by senior members of Biden's national security team and signed off on by the president himself on early this Thursday. The United States is more diverse and more multiracial than ever before, according to the new 2020 census data released on Thursday. People of color represented 43% of the total U.S. population in 2020, up from 34% in 2010. The non-Hispanic white share of the U.S. population fell to 57% in 2020, shrinking by six percentage points since 2010, the largest decrease of any race or ethnicity. The share of those identified as Hispanic or Latino or as multiracial grew the most. The U.S. aged overall since 2010, and the population younger than 18 became more diverse. The adult population in the U.S. has grown from 237 million to 261 million during the last 10 years. The share of the adult-aged population has increased slightly from 76% in 2010 to 78% in 2020. The U.S. remains among nations with the highest rate of new COVID-19 cases, driven mostly by a surge in the South, where many states are lagging in getting people vaccinated against the coronavirus. In the month of August, the U.S. has so far reported more than 1.5 million new cases of COVID-19, more than three times the number of Iran and India, which now hold second and third place and the seven-day average has topped more than 135,000 cases, well ahead of other nations. Florida on Friday broke its own record high in COVID-19 cases over the past week, reporting 151,415 new cases, 
the most infections recorded during a seven-day period since the pandemic affected lives across the globe. COVID-19 hospitalizations have essentially doubled across much of Southern California over the last two weeks. A troubling trend, officials say, illustrates the pandemic's continued potency amid an ongoing surge in infections. Increases of that magnitude have been seen in Los Angeles, San Diego, Orange, Riverside, and San Bernardino counties, state data show, straining healthcare systems to an extent not seen in months. Those counties, California's five most populous, both reflect and drive the wider trends playing out across the state. California as a whole has seen its number of hospitalized corona-positive patients swell from 2,981 on July 25th to 5,973 as of Sunday. The Blunt Post with Vic. Congressman Adam Schiff is an American hero, an icon, and one of the most extraordinary members of Congress in modern American history. He represents California's 28th Congressional District, which includes Glendale, Pasadena, Burbank, Hollywood Hills, East Hollywood, and West Hollywood. In his 11th term in the House of Representatives, Congressman Schiff currently served as the chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, which oversees the nation's intelligence agencies. Congressman Schiff was one of the managers appointed by the House of Representatives in 2020 to conduct the impeachment proceedings of then-President Donald Trump. Congressman Schiff has worked tirelessly to advocate and improve healthcare, education, criminal justice reform, immigration, the economy, Issues important to the Armenian American community and the LGBTQ community. Well, Congressman Schiff, thank you again for doing this. My pleasure. You are truly an icon for the Armenian community, for the LGBTQ community, for Americans, and worldwide for your leadership, what you did with all the weight that was on your shoulders. Uh, in 2019 and 2020 and how you walk through that. So it was a dream for me to have you be part of this documentary. Well, thank you. It's an honor to participate. Absolutely. Someone who for 30 years, even prior to becoming a member of Congress, a state senator, you've been fighting for um, human rights, Armenian-American rights, uh, just the rights of the, the sort of the underdog. So it seems like <laughs> issues concerning the Armenian American community on a large scale, they just keep happening. <laughs> I mean, you, you worked so hard for the recognition of the Armenian genocide. You brought it to the House in 2019 and it passed and went to the Senate, passed and President Biden signed it. But now we have this entirely different thing to deal with. Uh, and of course, a lot of people are looking uh, at your leadership. What is your assessment and, and uh, perception about where we are now? Well, I, I guess it begins with a great frustration because the war uh, in Artsakh was preventable. And uh, for years, Azerbaijan uh, provoked violence along the line of contact. And many of us in Congress, uh, through successive administrations, urged uh, our State Department uh, to forcefully push back, to 
uh, call out Azerbaijan for its uh, belligerence and its uh, provocative acts. And, uh, and the most that we could get was uh, statements of uh, moral equivalence. Uh, we call both sides to cease any further violence, call both sides to peacefully resolve the differences. When you do that, when you're not willing to hold one side accountable that's responsible, it's essentially greenlighting further aggression. And I think that gave Azerbaijan the impression that they could uh, continue along that path and make war without repercussion. And so the, the, my first um, sentiment about the whole thing is just how tragically preventable it was. And, uh, and then uh, the, the horrific loss of life, uh, Turkey's role in importing mercenaries uh, from Syria, uh, terrorists uh, to... Uh, join the, the mayhem, um, again demonstrated how incompatible Turkey's actions are with being a NATO ally. And more immediately, uh, we still need to continue the pressure to return these prisoners of war to end these sham prosecutions and uh, make sure that these uh, young people are returned to their families. Uh, so that, that trauma continues. Uh, and. Uh, the only thing I think that's going to achieve the result that we want is for the United States and our allies to continue to pressure Azerbaijan and to hold them accountable in the international court of law. So uh, that's a lot. Um, I'm working on some reforms to the Freedom Support Act so that we uh, don't provide aid to Azerbaijan when they're engaged in human rights violations. and. Uh, and we've had a number of conversations with the Biden administration to get them to stop. Um, and if we need to change the law, then that's what we'll need to do. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Congressman Adam Schiff. I was going to ask you about that later, but since you brought it up, you know, it was very surprising that about a week after President Biden recognized the Armenian Genocide properly, uh, he turned around and waived Section 907, uh, which you just spoke about. And and I know that you have I've followed your actions about that and you voiced your concern and such. What was that about? Yeah. I just have a hard time understanding that. Well, the, you know, the rationale the administration gives is that the assistance they're providing, they're being very careful to make sure that it can't be used for offensive purposes against uh, Azerbaijan, against Armenia or Artsakh. And that it's for things like um, preventing drugs from coming across the border into Azerbaijan. Um, regardless, um, resources are at one level fungible. Unless there's a requirement that you maintain other efforts, you can always divert resources. Right. Um, but more than that, just the idea that we would be providing any kind of military support to a nation that just made unprovoked war against its neighbor um, uh, just I think is wrong and so you know what what the State Department Defense Department have said is that they're following the requirements of section 907 but 907 is very permissive mm. uh, the way it's written and so I've been working with the Armenian community on legislation that would change and remove uh, some of the discretion in that provision. Well, that God clarifies a lot. Thank you for that. Um, and especially Azerbaijan. I mean, do they really need any aid with the oil that's oil and gas yeah. that's going out of there? It just it baffles me. Another thing that baffles me is 
I think one of the wake-up calls for me after September 27th was, of course, I had no expectation of the uh, expectations of the Trump administration and Secretary Pompeo at the time. I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, President Trump gave Erdogan the green light to do what he needed to do. But I was surprised by the inaction of the European Union, Council of Europe, a lot of European bodies, I feel like they play three monkeys. And then a couple of days ago, of course, the ambassadors of many nations, excluding the US, uh, Russia, and France, members of the OSCE Men's Group, uh, went to parts of occupied Artsakh on this tour, on this propaganda tour. That too, I don't understand. I mean, Greece was one of them. I thought, really, Greece? Um, do those things baffle you, or you know, you you're so your perspective is so much broader, bigger that you kind of understand it? Well, I, I don't understand all of it. I don't understand uh, what you've described, particularly Greece's role. That's very shocking. Um, in terms of of Europe's inaction. Uh, you know, I think uh, France tried to play a leadership yeah. role, um, but the United States is uh, really indispensable. And when we lead, uh, we have the capacity to inspire others to, to act with us. When we don't lead, then other nations consider it a pass and they yeah. uh, don't necessarily take responsibility to fill in the void. And, uh, and so without stronger leadership of the United States to push back against uh, Azeri aggression uh, without more initiative by the United States and the Minsk group. The Minsk group process kind of languished and, uh, uh, and we are where we are. So, you know, for a lot of the last several years, I, I watched uh, Macron and I thought uh, that I'm glad that someone is yeah. trying to do something. Um, but uh, the degree to which Turkey and Azerbaijan are going to feel compelled to do something because France is asking versus France and the United States. It's a big, big difference. Sure. I would think that uh, President Biden, having been you know, in, in Congress for decades prior to that, and he's very knowledgeable about this entire issue, that, that they would really be a little bit more firm. But I don't see that from him or Secretary Blinken. Um, I think that it's still probably too early to tell which direction the administration is going uh, with some of these issues. Um, they're obviously looking at Azerbaijan, not alone through the prism of the impact on Armenia. Sure. And uh, at the same time, um, I found the administration, when I was lobbying them on the genocide, to be more supportive, more conversant with the issue than any other administration I dealt with. And uh, and that led, not surprisingly, to the result that we all hoped uh, with the president's recognition of the genocide. So um, in many respects, I think they understand the region and the history better than prior administrations, but we still plainly have work to do. Um, because they have not been willing to stand up to Azerbaijan the way they need to. Yeah. I just wonder if, um, you know, sometimes it's we simplify and think it's just the oil and gas and the, the weapons that Azerbaijan buys from Western countries and such. And, of course, they have such a strong lobby power and just a propaganda machine. Um, I see it and read it on a daily basis. It's um, 
I think that's one of the reasons when, when President Macron was so, I think, courageous with it and was trying to get the French troops there vis-a-vis UN, thought, wow, someone is actually going to do something. Uh, it was a little bit of hope, but, you know, right now they're, they're using these prisoners of war who I think are at this point hostages yeah. to really make deals, you know, to make deals. And it's such a tragic situation that's just been going on. They really are hostages. I think yeah. that's exactly the right word for it. Um, and I don't know whether you know, part of the issue um, is in terms of a reluctance uh, by any administration to take on a stronger role, push back on Azerbaijan, has to do with the geop- geopolitical considerations vis-a-vis Russia. But uh, we have a moral obligation, and you know we've learned, I think, the hard way that uh, when we uh, sacrifice our values um, in the hope that it will serve the national interest, it doesn't, because our values are our interests, and our interests are our values. And so um, we're going to, you know, we're going to keep pushing back. I, I do think that with respect to the Congress, the the Azeri lobby is a big deal, um, and the Turkish lobby has been a big deal yeah. and a big impediment. I think that's less of an issue with the administration. I think the administration is it's more geopolitical thinking than it is the lobby. But you know, in Congress, we have a very broad base of support, bipartisan base of support for Armenia, yeah. and uh, we want to strengthen the U.S.-Armenia relationship. Glad to see we've got a substantial amount of funding in the appropriations bill for Armenia and money for demining uh, operations in Artsakh as well. Uh, not as much as we would like, but nonetheless, um, given where the budget is these days. Uh, Without you, it would have been... Uh, way less. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Congressman Adam Schiff. So I want to sort of put you on the spot if I can for a second. I know that all people, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Armenian community, LGBT community, Whatever minority group, we expect so much from our members of Congress, and we think everything can just be fixed like that. (laughs) Share something that you would like to share with the Armenian community that you think they they just need to know, just know where you're coming from. Well, I was going to come back to the same thing, which is um, from my very first days and even before politics, um, the Armenian community welcomed me like a member of family, and it's been a wonderful uh, relationship. And I think that the, the affinity that I have for the community, and I hope the community has for me, um, a lot of it comes from my own background. I come from a community that had, it, had its own genocide. Um, I know what it's like to have an affinity for a country far away, surrounded by hostile neighbors. Yeah. Uh, and. Those struggles are familiar uh, to me. I know the, the pain of genocide denial when I hear Holocaust denial. And also, uh, there, there's so many cultural similarities in love of family and love of food and looking at uh, 
uh, your, your colleague's uh, T-shirt. Um, <laughs> uh, that same sentiment, I'm not yelling, I'm Armenian. You could say that about the Jewish community, too. Uh, so just not just... as loud. <laughs> yes, I wrote, two years ago, I wrote a, a long-form article. I called it Jews, colon, Armenians, other cousins. And I went into how uh, we've considered the Greeks our cousins. I think a lot of it has to do with our past with Turkey and then the French for you know France's role in sort of toward the end of the genocide what they did in rescuing of Armenians and such and then uh, I go into the connection between the Jewish community and Armenians and from Ambassador Morgenthau to Franz Werfel to, you know, who, who wrote 40 Days on Musadal, to, to Raphael Lemkin, who coined the term genocide and on and on. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I was remarking to my staff the other day, I was at the groundbreaking for the Armenian American Museum and Cultural Center and listening to the Protestant uh, priest, uh, Armenian priest, who spoke. Um, I they let him there? They let him in? <laughs> Indeed. Um, I was really struck by, and I, I guess he was speaking in the Western dialect, okay. how much the chanting of the prayers in Armenian in the Western dialect reminded me of the chanting of prayers in Hebrew. And I didn't know whether it was the geographic proximity that, that accounted for the similarity, but I, w I, I was really struck by it. And yeah, uh, so I think we are cousins. Yes. I actually went to the Holocaust Memorial in Yerevan too. Uh, I went to Tzernagobert, the Armenian Genocide Memorial, and the Holocaust Memorial. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that line from Hitler when he gave the speech before invading Poland, I think it haunts people who nowadays are members of the extermination of Armenians, yeah. trying to convince the, the Nazis that uh, don't worry about killing Jews, no one's going to care, don't yeah. love, forget it, like yeah. they did with the Armenians. So, Congressman, I don't want to break my <laughs> promise of how long this is going to take. Um, I do want to ask you if you want to add something, if there was a question I should have asked you. Um, I don't think so. No, I really appreciate what you're doing. And, uh, Can I give some hope to Armenians who feel very embattled? Uh, the history of the Armenian people is a history of resilience. It's a history of overcoming difficulties, experiencing setbacks, and yet pushing forward, always forward, and overcoming. It, it's a history tinged with great sadness, but also great joy. And the Armenian community will, will continue to persevere. Uh, I have every confidence. And, and I'm just grateful to have such a close relationship and to be able to see the contributions the community makes to our, our lives in, in America and around the world. Uh, so this is a very difficult time, but but people should know these this too shall pass. And 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 we we support you and love you and cherish you. Thank you, Congressman. Well, I can tell pleasure. you what this meant. Thank you for for coming in and thank pleasure you. talking to you. That was the extraordinary Congressman Adam Schiff, um, and that was his third time being on my show. This time. I was able to go to his office. It was such a privilege to go to his office and do an on-camera uh, interview with him uh, for my uh, documentary feature film that I'm working on called Motherland. And uh, this was the most in-depth that uh, we'd gone. So I'm very grateful. Uh, thank you, Congressman Schiff, for everything that you do for our nation, 
uh, and uh, humanity, um, you are you are an icon, and I and I thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do um, for all of us. The Blunt Post with Vic. Pete Harden is one of Southern California's leading litigators. is a former judge advocate in the U.S. Marine Corps, a combat veteran, a former deputy district attorney, special assistant United States attorney and is running to be Orange County's next district attorney. A few of Pete's top priorities include supporting and holding law enforcement accountable, combating hate crimes, tackling public corruption, addressing racial disparities in the criminal justice system, making environmental justice a public priority, and a lot more. He's running to enhance public safety, heal and restore victims and survivors of crime, and restore integrity and professionalism to the Orange County District Attorney's Office, which is riddled with corruption and scandals under the current District Attorney, Todd Spitzer. Good morning, Pete. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with uh, Vic this morning. How are you today? Good morning, Vic. I'm outstanding, and I'm very grateful to you for having me. Yeah, it's uh, good to talk to you. It's uh, Orange County is a very important county in the country, uh, perhaps one of the most important. And uh, the the race that's coming up next year, the district attorney race for which you are running, is also very important because so many people are not happy with uh, with the current district attorney, Todd uh, Spitzer. So um, I'm glad to be talking to you and, uh, you know, diving right into your, your platform and what's on your agenda, reading about you. I was very excited to, to read that, uh, you know, you're big on uh, reforming criminal justice system in Orange County. If you can talk a little bit about that. You bet, Vic. Happy to. Let me just start by sort of reiterating something you just said, which is, um, you know, the importance of, of Orange County. Uh, a lot of our brothers and sisters, uh, Angelinos, uh, sort of think of us as, as the ugly, uh, ugly stepchild, perhaps. But uh, and that there is that strong orange curtain there. But, um, you know, Orange County is the sixth most populous county in the whole country. Uh, we are larger here than, than 21 states. And we've really got an outsized influence on on uh, on our criminal justice system in general. And um, I hope to, to lead us in, the, in a new direction. We've got an exciting opportunity, I think, to, to create a, a new sustainable model for, for criminal justice reform uh, led by someone who believes in reform, uh, and I'll talk about that in a second, but uh, who has also served as a prosecutor at, at every level of our criminal justice system. Uh, I've been a Marine Corps officer and a judge advocate. I'm a combat veteran, uh, spent about a year in Afghanistan with a reconnaissance battalion, and uh, I've been a deputy district attorney at our office here, as well as a federal prosecutor at the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, I've become concerned throughout my career about uh, the manner in which we, uh, we're we administering criminal justice and, and policing in, in a lot of ways in this country. And um, I think that, uh, you know, in all too many ways, uh, our, our justice system has failed to evolve over the last 30 years since the era of the super predator uh, and sort of uh, chest-thumping, tough-on-crime prosecutors um, all of our other professions have, have evolved. I mean, imagine, imagine going to a doctor or hiring an architect or an engineer uh, who was still doing business like it was, you know, in the mid-1990s. Well, that's in a lot of ways, in too many ways, that's what we're doing uh, with our criminal justice system in too many places uh, across the country. 
Absolutely. No, well said uh, and very detailed. I appreciate that. You know, um, yeah, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And uh, so much hasn't changed in Orange County, and we keep encountering the same issues. But before we go into that, I really want to sort of applaud you for something, and that's your plan to end the death penalty. When I, a lot of times when I'm talking to friends and such and about whatever law or politics, uh, sometimes it just gets down to this. I always say, if we look at the countries around the, uh, around the world with the highest um, standards of living and the happiest people, and this is according to studies, uh, you always encounter uh, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Norway, mm-hmm. Belgium, Iceland. And not only those nations, but throughout the European Union, death penalty um, has been done away with. And yet we're still sort of struggling with that. But I think your plan is even deeper than, you know, or more detailed than I'm uh, explaining, surely. If you want to speak a little bit about that. Uh, Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, Vic. I mean, you're absolutely right uh, in in terms of looking at other countries, but let's look closer to home. I mean, Virginia, a southern state uh, where where I did so much of my, my Marine Corps training has done away with the death penalty. Uh, California is a leader in this country in so many ways, uh, but we're at risk of of becoming a follower. Uh, The tide is undoubtedly turning on this, and uh, I'd I'd like to help us get out in in front of it. Look, you you know, I'm going to be honest with you. The death penalty was, uh, my stance on the death penalty, I should say, was was a tough thing uh, to come to, to to reckon with uh, throughout my life, I, I have struggled with, with different opinions on it because I really believe that you know that that need for retribution that that humans have, uh, a lot of humans have, not everyone, uh, is a is is it's a real thing. It's it's part of our DNA somehow. Uh, so uh, when the brother or sister or or, or loved one is is murdered, uh, we we want to lash out against the against the perpetrator, and that is so human. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've been to war and I've, I've, uh, experienced these things firsthand. Um, that being said, you know, Vic, the, the, the way that our death penalty system works is, is just so broken. Uh, it really is. And, uh, hugely informative to, to me has been talking with, uh, two individuals, Beth Webb in Huntington beach and, uh, and Paul Wilson, who's also here in Orange County. They both lost loved ones. Uh, Bethany Webb lost her sister, uh, and her mother was was shot as well, but she recovered. And Paul Wilson lost his wife in the Seal Beach massacre, which was the the worst mass shooting in Orange County history. Right. And, uh, and, you know, I had lunch uh, last week with with Paul, and he said, Pete, you know, if you had asked me that that day that it happened and that week that it happened, what what, what, what I wanted to happen uh, to to Scott DeCry, the... uh, the uh, individual who, who who perpetrated that mass murder, he said, I, I you know I wanted him dead, but in the, through the decade plus that I have gone through of trials and appeals, uh, where everything is uncertain and I have to relive uh, the victimization over over and over again, it, it, it's just a broken system, and I, I want to be able to let it go and rest in peace, knowing that that man. Is going to spend the rest of his life uh, give him a life sentence, uh, but give him life without uh, the possibility of parole. 
That's very um, brave, admirable. It's all. It's also important, though, to look. And, and I also want to say that I, I, I don't speak for all survivors. I, I, I want to make that very clear, and I respect that everyone may have a, a different opinion. Um, and reasonable minds can entirely differ on this. I, I, I really get that. Um, it's also extremely important to look at the fiscal aspect of this, though, Vic. Uh, since 1978, when the death penalty was uh, reimposed in California, we spent over $300 million uh, on, on, on this system. There's 750 people on death row. Uh, we put 13 of them to death since 1978. At the staggering cost of $300 million. That It's so staggering that wow. it's hard to imagine the things that we could do with that money. Uh, it's hard to imagine the programs that we could put in place uh, to prevent some of these disturbed individuals from ever having committed the crimes uh, that they did in the first place. Uh, yeah. Well, so, you know, so, so, someone has to pay for the, the prison industrial complex. Absolutely. Right. And, and it's, it's all coming out of our, our, our pockets. Um, and uh, a lot of my job as a, as a candidate here and, and it will be as uh, as our future DA if I'm fortunate enough to be elected is to help people understand uh, that uh, we should be diverting those resources to the things that we know reduce crime like strong public school education job placement programs um, uh, after school programs uh, drug and alcohol treatment programs uh, those are the things we know reduce crime and enhance our public safety uh, not keeping people uh, on death row at that staggering cost Absolutely. Uh, those of you who are just joining us, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. Uh, I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and I'm speaking with uh, Pete Harden, who is, uh, you know, his resume is, is very impressive. He is a former judge advocate in the U.S. Marine Corps. He is a combat veteran. He's a former deputy district attorney and a special assistant to the U.S. attorney uh, and, a, and a leading uh, litigator in California, and he's running for Orange County's uh, district attorney. So, uh, thank you for joining in, uh, Pete. Next thing I want to talk to you about is Orange County's sort of history, if you will, with the LGBTQ community. Twenty, twenty-five, maybe thirty years ago, um, South Orange County, especially, had a pretty vibrant. Uh, LGBTQ community, especially in Laguna Beach, uh, and it thinned out and thinned out, and uh, now it's really not that significant. And there is this, you know, this, you know, we talk about Orange County all the time that it's just not a very LGBTQ-friendly county. Uh, hate crimes uh, or anti-LGBTQ hate crimes have gone up 24% in Orange County, and. Uh, uh, Todd Spitzer has certainly not been a friend to our community, and so I'd like to sort of get your perspective on that and your plans, and what do you think? Yeah, absolutely, Vic. I'm, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Um, you know, I want to make sure that Orange County is, is a more uh, inclusive and supportive community across the board for all of the diverse residents that we have here, and this really is uh, one of the most diverse counties in, in the country, uh, although in a lot of ways, uh, we're, we're segregated between different uh, the, the different communities with Orange County. But let me let me start by just saying that uh, you're absolutely right. Our, our current district attorney has just an abysmal record on 
uh, on uh, supporting our LGBTQ plus community, dating back to, to his time in the state assembly. Uh, he sought to codify discrimination against uh, the community. Uh, he voted to allow sexual orientation based discrimination by the state. Um, he voted against legalizing same sex marriage. I mean, I mean, that should say it all. The highest score he ever received from Equality California while in the state assembly was 22%, uh, and the lowest score was 0%. Uh, then move on to his time as county supervisor. He defended a county partnership with an anti LGBTQ plus uh, community. And then, you know, much more recently, since he's been elected, uh, it's just been staggering. Uh, you know, over the past year, we've seen a, hor- a horrifying increase in, in heinous hate crimes across uh, the country, certainly. Uh, but Orange County is, is no different, and it has been worse here than it has been uh, throughout the state. You know, uh, as, as you mentioned, hate crimes have increased by 24 percent here, uh, even as the state reported an 8.3 percent decrease in hate crimes during uh, the same period. Uh, significantly, the Orange County Human Relations Board uh, has, uh, informs us that 23% of hate crimes reported are due to sexual orientation and uh, and gender identity. So, uh, you know, we, we've got a DA who loves to get himself in, in front of the TV cameras uh, and, and headlines and talk about this stuff, but uh, hasn't done anything about it. You know, it took... Uh, took him over a year into this this awful year where we've we've seen uh, this rise in hate crimes to finally stand up uh, a hate crimes unit with within the Orange County DA's office, um, and of course he's been all over the news talking about it. Um, but prosecuting hate crimes is the easy part. Uh, adding hate crime uh, enhancements that's the easy part, Vic. Uh, we've we've got to elect leaders throughout Orange County, not 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 just at the DA's office, who are going to stand up, talk about the importance of reporting of hate crimes, the impact uh, that hate crimes have on, on the community, uh, work with law enforcement to uh, create different approaches uh, to uh, working with uh, the LGBTQ plus community and recognizing the challenges uh, that that community faces, and then coming up with smart solutions. And, uh, I've got some ideas I'm, I'm excited to implement uh, around all that. I like that. And also, I think people, everything trickles down from the leaders of, you know, in this case, Orange County, uh, so that, what's the word I want to use? You know, bigots uh, are not emboldened and enabled when these bigots see that their leaders are are lax and uh you know they're not really doing their job it emboldens them and therefore they're they're more hate crimes you know toward not just lgbtq but uh, other minorities also in fact um there was a an assault case just recently uh, a few days ago um, against two uh, trans women um in orange county and uh you know in this case uh, you know, the, it was the Huntington, Huntington Beach police uh, arrested two trans women for assault, and uh, but neglected to include in their report that the victims uh, had earlier uh, harassed and hit the two women, <laughs> uh, whom one of the two officers referred to as a, a derogatory name for transgender women. Uh, and all of this is still developing, but um, I'm sure you know about this case and uh, want to sort of get your take on it and uh, uh what do you think about this because it's it just seems very serious that so much uh i mean even the officers have admitted 
that um, they did all of this and they failed on their report and such. I, I do know about the case, Vic, uh, and, and it's it, it's sad uh, that it happened in the first place. But it, it, you know, to me, it's terrifying that uh, the, the the officer didn't uh, you know didn't properly report this stuff, and uh, the DA's uh, our current district attorneys that it's failure to uh, address this stuff again. He's you know he's happy to to publish op-ed articles about you know hate having no place in orange county but then when something like this happens and uh, i mean this what let's make no mistake about it a hate crime against uh, uh trans women was committed and uh instead of the the perpetrators being arrested uh, well you know what i should back up vic uh, i shouldn't go i shouldn't go that far i should say from what i can tell uh it appears that a hate crime against uh, trans women uh, may have been committed. I, I'm, I know I'm getting all, all lawyerly about it and, and, <laughs> and hedging there, and I know that frustrates people, but I don't have all the evidence in front of me. But from reading this article, it, it's, it appears clear the, the officer uh, admitted on the stand that one of the trans women involved uh, was punched on the side of the head, suffered uh, significant swelling on the side of her head, uh, was pushed down onto the ground, and uh, one of the perpetrators stood over her and uh, taunting her as she uh, tried to stand up the the force that the the trans woman or women used in this place may well uh, in this case that is may well have been uh, in self-defense we we don't know and uh you know hopefully the a trial brings this out to light but it is very concerning that the officer didn't include that information in his report and but for a uh, a savvy uh, public defender who, who brought this out during the preliminary hearing i'm not sure we, we ever would have known that and um, the district attorney himself should be out in front of this stuff. Uh, and he, he's just failed to do that. Uh, but go, going back to kind of what we talked about before in terms of, uh, you know, not, not just prosecution, but having leaders across the spectrum to talk about these things, you know, deterrence theory, the, the research and data on how law enforcement, uh, law enforcement officers and prosecutors can actually deter crime. It tells us pretty clearly that a, a tough prosecutorial appro approach does little to actually deter future hate crimes. So uh, we've got to take a new uh, approach here, one built on community engagement, education, uh, and trust. And uh, as I mentioned, we could we talk for hours about this stuff, and I'm happy to get into any of it, but I've, I've got some, uh, some smart ideas about how to accomplish this. Wow. That's good to hear, and thank you for your analysis of of this specific case so in terms of your campaign give us some updates um and then you know what's happening what's important and then follow that up with a call to action or just let us know how people can get in touch with you and help you however they can thanks Vic. yeah so we we launched our campaign on march 16 so we're what coming up on four months into this and we are off to a fantastic start uh we've uh, raised a significant amount of money so far. I think we've uh, broken a record uh, up to the June 30th reporting deadline, uh, but it's going to take a lot. Uh, we've, we've got a lot of fundraising left to do, and uh, unfortunately, I'm uh, finding out firsthand that uh, politics r really is uh, about money because that's what it takes to uh, get your your uh, your message out and uh, to be able to affect change in the first place. Um, so we're off to a fantastic start there. We've earned endorsements from... Uh, several of our community leaders, including um, Congressman Mike Levin from from South County, 
Congressman uh, Harley Ruda, who yes. uh, we were hoping to, to get reelected. And I spoke last week with Congressman Alan Lowenthal, who uh, I'm very honored uh, has endorsed me. We have yet to get that up on our website, uh, but that's terrific. And, and, you know, equally important to me have been endorsements from our local elected officials, so city council folks and school board folks, uh, because those are the ones that really help me get out into the community and listen to concerns. I'm, I'm happy to talk about my background and my positions on the issues all day long, but a lot of that, you, you know, you can get from the website. Um, I want this campaign to be more about listening than, than it is about talking, because I think there are so many communities uh, especially our less affluent communities and communities of color in Orange County who have never had a voice in, in our criminal justice and, and policing system. And I think it's I think it's high time that that changes um, across the country, uh, but certainly in a, in a community like Orange County. Um, so let's see what else. Um, well, before you continue, we, and I'll let you think about that, let me just do a station ID. Um, if you're right. just joining us, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and I am speaking with um, the gentleman who will hopefully become the next uh, Orange County uh, District Attorney, Pete Harden. Pete is a, is a combat um, veteran. He is uh, a former judge advocate in the U.S. Marine Corps, deputy district attorney, special assistant to the U.S. attorney, and he is uh, running, as I said, for the Orange County District Attorney's Office. And I was just about to ask Pete about, uh, you know, anything important coming up in his campaign and call to action and how people can get in touch with him. Yeah, so we're going to have a, a bunch of events coming up that we'll post on our on our website. We're looking forward to organizing events throughout uh, throughout Orange County, of course, and reaching out to our broader Southern California community. We'll have that on our website. Um, I want your listeners to feel free to reach out and share the concerns uh, and ideas they have. You can reach us at info at PeteHarden.com. Uh, that's our website, PeteHarden.com. Um, in terms of a call to action, uh, a couple of, couple of different things. First of all, you know, we've got to spread the word about this campaign uh, and the ideals that we stand for uh, through social media. Uh, people often talk about, you know, getting followers on social media. Well, I don't want followers. I want leaders. Um, come like come check out what, what, what we're doing on social media. But uh, significantly, I, I'd like to ask folks to, to, to spread the word, uh, comment on the things we put out retweet, uh, repost, uh, so that we can reach a, a broader audience about this message. You know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough race against the guy who's probably Orange County's most entrenched, uh, politician who's facing a lawsuit and, uh, potential investigation for uh, criminal behavior for public corruption, pay for play type, uh, type behavior. Uh, we don't know whether we'll be facing, you know, police officer association uh, opposition and, and that the type of serious money that comes with that. But uh, it's, it's going to be a tough race. So fundraising is also incredibly important to us. Check out our website. And if you, if you like what we have to say, there's a donate button there. And I'd be grateful for your listener support. And that's PeteHarden.com. Yes, sir. P-E-T-E-H-A-R-D-I-N.com. Pete, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I feel like we could have spoken, <laughs> chatted for like hours. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, please come back and uh, give us updates and uh, good luck. The pleasure is all mine, Vic. Thank you for having me. I'd be delighted to come back anytime and continue the discussion. Have a great week. That was my interview with Pete Harden, who is a candidate to be Orange County's next district attorney. 
a very important position and a very important race next year. Uh, a lot of people in Orange County are very enthusiastic and I've galvanized uh, around him. So uh, thank you, Pete, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic and good luck to you. The Blunt Post with Vic. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jaramie. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.